0: We have lived in the Middle East for 20 years, up to 2020. We came back just in time for COVID, which was great, uh, uh, because we've been prepared by living in the Middle East <laughs> to live uh, through deprivation and, and isolation. Uh, so it felt like we were in Iraq when we came back to America. And we've been here two years. We've loved being in Louisville with our children. Our children are all members at Third Avenue Baptist Church, was which is a which is a joy. And uh, one of my one of my my oldest son married a hilltopper, uh, yeah, Emily, uh, formerly Avanco, now Styles. So, anyhow, lots of connections here. My sister went went to school here in Western, and I'm from Owensboro originally. Uh, just just so you know. Well, look, look, I want to talk about evangelism, and in this in this. Um, 10 critical points of biblical evangelism. and just to walk through these scripture verses and comment on how this has bearing on, on us as believers as we share our faith. Now, first of all, we, we, we start off by knowing the gospel, 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So to be prepared to share the gospel means we need to know the gospel, We need to understand it. And you need to nail down four big things. Who is God? Holy, separate, uh, loving, God the Father, our Creator God. We need to understand stuff about ourselves that we are made in God's image, but we're sinful and broken and separated from God. We need to understand what Christ has done for us. That Jesus, the perfect man who was fully God, paid the perfect sacrifice for our sins, rose from the dead such that we could be reunited with God. And we need to know our response. That is to repent and believe in Christ. Mostly we repent of disbelief. That's mostly what we repent of. But you know, it's more than that. You need to nail that down cold. And I find that if, if I'm not sharing the gospel, I get rusty on the gospel. It's hard for me to think through those four areas of the gospel. But it's more than just that. You need to be a student of the gospel. We need to know the message inside and out. You need to know what is not the gospel. There's a lot of people who talk about things that are the, they think are the gospel that are not. So for example, Leanne and I directed a program in Guatemala. We would, we would travel up into some of the most desperate places we've ever been in our lives in the Ashil Triangle up in the highlands where, where the site of the Guatemalan Civil War had been. We worked in a malnourishment clinic. Leanne was a pharmacist. She worked in the pharmacy there. We, we worked uh, in, in, a, in an orphanage there. We, we held dying babies in our arms. I mean, it was, it was a really, really desperate situation. Guatemalan Civil War had killed a lot of the men and, well, a lot of the women too. And so that's why there were so many orphans uh, during the Civil War. We would hike into the villages at times to share the gospel, but mostly we stayed down in this malnourishment clinic and worked with with these desperately poor slash and burn farmers. When we would share about being in this malnourishment clinic, people would say, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And I was like, I mean, I like being there, and it was important to be at the malnourishment clinic. I was like, no, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a message from God that leads us to salvation, wherever you find it. In the Old Testament where it's where it's translated good news, or in the New Testament where it's presented as the gospel, that's what it means, the message from God that leads us to salvation. Good works, like working in a malnourishment clinic, obviously I'm for it. <laughs> but it's not the gospel, it commends the gospel, it adorns the gospel, it gives credibility to, to the gospel, we do those kind of things. But don't get those things confused. You need to be a student of the gospel and be able to explain those kind of things. When we know the gospel, we don't confuse good works with the gospel. Secondly, we speak the gospel. 1 Corinthians 5, 11, and this is the passage of scripture we're going, going to look at in the morning service. Since we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The gospel is a message. And we must be able to articulate it into words. So it's not living a good life in front of other people. Uh, You must speak it. So I was in the Denver airport. I was in the Denver airport, and I was at Smash Burgers, which is a great burger. And uh, Leanne and I had a long layover. And so we're sitting there, and uh, the, the, uh, the server... Is looking at this guy two tables down from us. I start looking at him. I think that's Lance Armstrong. You know, Lance, the disgraced bicycle guy who used to cheat to win the Tour de France. Have you, have you ever heard of this guy? So yeah, he was married to uh, Cheryl Crow. You know. Anyhow, so uh, oh, that's Lance Armstrong. And Lance like, honey, can we just eat our burgers? <laughs> no, I want to. You know, go <laughs> meet Lance Armstrong. You know, he's just there by himself eating a burger. So I kinda walk up to him, you know, like fanboy. I mean, he's this disgraced, <laughs> he's a disgraced guy. And um, so, cause he lied, you know, he lied for years about, about doping for, for cycling, for those of you who don't know. Uh, so I walk up to him and I said, are you Lance Armstrong? And he was like, I am, like, don't hurt me, you know? And I go, oh no, I, uh, I just wanted to meet you. Uh, I, I didn't know what to say, I was like, I was in, I was in Paris and I was at—I—I I, I saw you win in 2004. I, and where you had the yellow jersey on, you crossed the finish line. There was a big, big—they shut down the the tour. You know the what's the the uh, what's the name of this the Champs Elysees? Yeah, the, you know the Arc de Triomphe was open. We walked through it, and everyone was all excited. He goes, "Yeah, I, I, I remember that." I said, "My my children were with me." He goes. How are are your kids? I think he thought I was like a real bicycle fanatic. And (laughs) I was like, oh, they're fine, they're fine. Um, He put his head down on the table. He goes, oh, I messed up so bad. I messed up so bad. And um, I was unprepared. I was completely unprepared. Um, and, and here's the truth. Here's the truth of the situation. We were, you know, we're coming back from Dubai. We're on Air France. We're, we got the cheapest tickets we could get. So we've got this 15 hour layover in Paris. We're all jet lagged. I didn't even know the Tour de France was going on. We had gone to the Louvre and just happened to walk out and see, you know, see Lance Armstrong. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I had no personal connection with this at all. You know, uh, I think I just missed it. And so I kind of blubbered something about, "Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a missionary in Iraq, and I, I I follow Jesus, and He offers second chances or something." You know, I just and uh, and then the conversation changed, and I walked back to the seat, and I just we got on our flight. I just like I forgot to speak the gospel, and here's this guy that needs it, you know? And how did I miss that? How did I miss this opportunity? I was so blinded by other things that I forgot. I think that is ninety-nine point nine percent of my evangelistic, by the way, my evangelistic efforts <laughs> are fails, you know, for one reason or another. But I just, I just want to, I, I want to identify with how often we forget to speak the gospel. But we must do it. We must be ready for those divine appointments that come our way. I've prayed for Lance ever since then, that someone would come alongside him and tell him the gospel, unlike me. Thirdly, relive the gospel. Galatians 2.14. I saw that, this is a very important, this is almost an offhanded comment from Paul. I saw that their conduct was not in line with the truth of the gospel. So first, yes, we must know the message back and backwards and forwards. We know the gospel. Secondly, we speak the gospel. But also, our life must be in line with the gospel. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.14. So that phrase that he used there, this is, this is where Paul is, is telling the story of why he rebuked Peter, the apostle, the big one, you know, the one that walked with Jesus. Jesus Peter was the rock. And, and Paul had rebuked Peter Because he he was not walking in line with the gospel. So the point being that Paul sees the gospel as a way of life, a way that we walk. Peter was apparently eating, was not eating with the Gentiles. So on the surface of things, it was about how it was about bread, it was about eating a meal. But but Paul understood even that has to do with how we walk in line with the gospel. And Paul said later, or actually he said it earlier in chapter 1, his rebuke of Peter preserved the gospel for us. It was important that we didn't slip into legalism about that, or racism worst. Many think that the gospel, of course, was what gets you saved, and it is. But it's not only that. It deals with all of life. So the aim is to have a gospel-centered life, that the gospel is the hub of our lives, that... It's not the ABC of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. We live it out. And honestly, guys, look, in evangelism, the most important thing you can do is fall so in love with Jesus, to know him so well, that you're walking with him so passionately, that you can't help but it come out, right? That that by the very nature of who you are, the gospel comes out of you. Because you you've seen what he does, you've you you've experienced his forgiveness in, in your own life, and and this this gospel has relationship with all these things, racial issues and reconciliation are deeply intertwined. How we raise our children have gospel implications. I have a friend who uh, was was telling me how he had he uh, was disciplining his children, <laughs> and. Uh, he, he he was right. You know, he, he was in the right, they were in the wrong, they'd done something bad. Later his wife came to him and said, you know, you were right, you were right, the kids were wrong, but you know, I didn't I didn't hear the gospel in your discipline of them. And he 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 was rightly rebuked. He said, You're right, you know, I, I need I need to think of the gospel as we raise our children. How we deal with surly non-Christians, we too were once enemies of God. Um, it's so important to live out the gospel. Our, our, our children, when they tell their story of faith, have said that one of the reasons they came to faith was that they saw we really believed it. We really believed this stuff. Um, that we lived like Jesus had risen from the dead. Now that's very encouraging to us because we didn't always feel that. Uh, and any parent here knows that you, you have to deal with a lot of guilt. But, bottom line, we want to be in love with Jesus and his gospel such that we live it out and that the gospel comes out of us. Number four, have confidence in the gospel. Romans one sixteen. for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. You know, it's, I doubt that this is true at Christ Fellowship, but it is easy to, to rely on events and programs or even gimmicks if you're not careful rather than the gospel itself when it comes to evangelism. So many in the Christian world, when they think of evangelism, they think of an event. A speaker comes to present the gospel or, or you know, there's myriad of ways that, that you can do that. I don't care how many people come to an event, it will never be as effective as one Christian sharing with a non-Christian about their faith. And I think you understand that intuitively. That's why we say things, even at events, it's really important to follow up. Because we know that very few people actually come to Jesus at an event. Most people come to Christ because a friend has shared the gospel with them. Now there's there you know God hits straight with a crooked stick. People come to Jesus in all sorts of wacky ways, you know. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing how gracious God is. But most people come to faith because someone who knows Jesus and loves Jesus explains the gospel to another, another person. You know, I, the pew. Uh, you know, the pew research folks did this uh, survey about who are the most who are the people that lead the most people to Christ, you know? It was like Billy Graham or TV preachers and stuff like that. Do you know who leads the most people to Christ in the Christian world? Moms. (laughs) Moms lead more people to Jesus than anybody else, which is incredible, right? I mean, think about it. How many people had a faithful mother share the gospel with them? So... Understand, I'm not I'm not opposed to events, Christian events. I speak at evangelistic events. One of, one of the great things that we did in Dubai, we lived in Dubai for 16 years. We had a Muslim-Christian dialogue, which was not ever done in the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, as far as we could tell. Where we actually had a Christian speaker and a and a Muslim speaker talk about, about their faith, you know, and it was s- sort of scary. <laughs> Because no one had ever done it, and, but we had hundreds of people show up. That Thousands of people watched it on the internet. So I'm, I'm for events, I'm for evangelistic events. But here's, here's the way to think of it. A program is to evangelism what sugar is to nutrition. It's tasty, it's addictive, it takes away a desire for more healthy food. It's a quick, there's a quick burst of energy, but over time it makes you flabby and a steady diet will kill you. That's what sugar's like. Well, the same true for evangelistic programs. It produces malnourished evangelism. Just like eating sugar can make you feel like you've eaten when you haven't. Programs can make you feel like you've done evangelism when you haven't. You haven't actually sat down with someone and shared the gospel with them. So we should have a healthy unease with programs, and you should use them strategically, but in moderation, like sugar. So less, less confidence in programs and more confidence in the gospel. Look, I I don't know where I heard this story. If you all know where this story comes from, uh, I, I'd love to know because I'd love to quote this, but I, I heard this story, and I think it's a good representation of what the gospel is like when we call out when we call out the gospel to people. We don't know who's gonna respond. So there was a, a, a man in Scotland back in the day who owned a sheep farm. And he and his daughter would every day go out with the dogs to herd the sheep in the good pasture. And to do that, they whistled for the dogs. And she became an excellent whistler and he did too. And they loved to whistle and sing together when they were working with the dogs and the sheep farm. Well, she grew up and um, became a beautiful young actress and went off to the big city to make her fortune, but fell in with some bad people and was taken to a house of prostitution. This farmer got word that his daughter was in trouble, but he didn't know how to get in touch with her. So he began wandering through the big city whistling the songs that they had whistled together when she was young. And one day, a whistle came back. It was her, reunited with her father and taken home. I think that's a good picture of what we do with the gospel. We whistle it out to lost and hurting and desperate people. We whistle the gospel out not knowing who's gonna respond. We're we're very, very good to whistle everywhere we go. Five, don't assume the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, Paul, of course, is in 2 Timothy 2.2, giving us a picture of how we preserve the gospel. We pass it on. We care for it in a way. It's a precious gift to us. We pass the gospel on to those who will be entrusted with the gospel and then pass it on to others. That's what they do. It's also a picture of how we lose the gospel. So if we're we're not doing this, you will lose the gospel. And here's how that happens. So, this, can be a gen- this could be a generation, literally a generation uh, of people, of Christians. It could be a generation of elders. It could be a student generation, four years uh, at Western, you know, I mean, uh, in a campus ministry. It, it can go it, go, it goes like this. The first generation has the gospel, and they're, they're strong in the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. They start thinking everyone knows this. They move on to other stuff. The third generation gets the Gospel wrong. Because it's been assumed and not taught, they don't do very well with it. The fourth generation loses the Gospel. You can see that in churches, uh, Lance and I were talking about how, how often we drive by churches that are just shells, and, and this church was once that away. Some There were people here who believed the Gospel, who set up this building, but over time, the gospel was lost. Or, or worse, when I drive by a, a mosque that used to be a church, that I, I have this thought, somebody lost the gospel in there. And I think the generation that is most responsible in that is the generation that assumed the gospel. We, we start assuming that people know this message. We start assuming people are Christians who are not. So that follows the exact parallel of what Paul has said in his four generations. Paul knew the gospel. He passed it to Timothy, who passed it to faithful men, who passed it on to faithful men. The four generations of keeping the gospel strong do that. But when you lose the gospel, the bad assumption leads to the next. There's no need to share. There's no need to teach or preach the gospel. Over time, there's confusion about the gospel. External actions like we talked about in Guatemala, are confused with genuine Christian faith. Morality becomes an expectation and not a response of love. The cross is treated merely as an example, not as a place where God's wrath and love uniquely meet. And eventually the gospel is lost altogether. Let me, uh, let me commend to you uh, other books about this. <laughs> Um, because this is a travesty in the Christian community, one, one of which is the Marks of the Messenger, which is my book, uh, and 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 the center, the heart of the book is to talk about the assumed gospel. We we want we want to be we want to guard the gospel as Paul tells Timothy. There's a couple in our church, um, and. Uh, uh, the woman is on fire for Jesus, and her husband is not a believer. He occasionally shows up to church when he's not playing golf. And um, one day, I I went up to him. I said, "Tom, you know, you're surrounded by Christians. You come to church. You hear these incredible sermons from Greg Gilbert on, on the gospel. I just I'm just curious what you think about it. You know, tell me what what you think about Jesus." And he goes. Well, I'm, I'm not a believer. I'm not. Uh, I, come, I come because my, it makes my wife happy. <laughs> uh, which is better than nothing, right? I mean, <laughs> at, least he, at least he shows up <laughs> and, uh, sometimes. And uh, later, his wife came up to me and said, you know, um, that was the first time anyone talked to my husband in church about the gospel. And and ask questions about him. And when we got in the car, he said, "Why did Why did Mac do that to me? Why, what's, and Gil, you know?" She said, "Cause you're going to hell," which is maybe part of the problem. <laughs> but anyhow, it's true, right? And um, and he wants you to, to you know to come to Jesus. And um, I just thought this guy's been showing up a lot, and we must not assume that people other people are talking to him. There's another kind of assumption. Don't, don't assume people that you know are not believers have other people talking to them. Maybe they don't. Well, anyhow, let's move on to number six. I'm, I'm, uh, just by the way, this is we're halfway. I want to uh, encourage you to think of questions that you might have to ask me. I'm going to save a little time maybe for Q&A at the end if you'd like to ask questions. Understand biblical conversion. So Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Biblical conversion is one of the things most misunderstood in the larger Christian evangelical world. Biblical conversion is not cultural. Of course, you know that. We're not born Christians. All Christians, all genuine believers are converts. I would say that to my Muslim friends uh, in the Middle East. They, they were always astounded by that. Uh, they talk about converts. Oh, I know a convert from Islam to Christianity. And I said, you know, I know lots of converts. And they go, yeah, really? And i said, say, yeah, every Christian you meet that's a genuine Christian is a convert. And they go, wow, how, how's that happen? And it was a great doorway into the, a gospel conversation. All Christians are converts. You must come to that place where you put your trust and faith in Christ repent of disbelief, and follow Jesus as Lord, that, 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 that it's, it's not walking an aisle, it's not raising a hand, it's not saying a prayer even. It's certainly not a formula. Now, I know many, many people come to Christ in some of those ways, and, and it's wonderful if you if you have. But for as many as do, there are many more who haven't. Biblical conversion is a new heart, not a nice heart. It's not a nice person. It's not about morality. It's accompanied by the fruit of repentance and a love of Jesus. So the word is preached and believed. There is repentance from disbelief and sin. And our repentance is primarily that we've not believed in Jesus, Lord of the universe. So... Dubai is very closely related in the Middle East to India. And so I've had a lot of opportunity to be in India, which, is a, which has been a real joy for me. And uh, I've done a lot of weddings. I'm in the youth ministry, so I, I get to do Indian weddings, which are awesome. I did them in India. And if you want to know a big hoo-ha, go to Indian weddings. It's like thousands. Um, and that was small. It was a small, small wedding. Anyhow... And I've had opportunity, especially up north the northern part of India, to, to uh, be in ministry and in some ministry context. I know some, some, some Indian folks who've been converted a hundred times. <laughs> Every time an American preacher goes over and has people raise their hand to, to come to Jesus... Uh, they do it they just would do it you know <laughs> i'll come to jesus and that makes the evangelist feel good and they go home and have stories back in america and so one time i said why do you guys do this? why do you guys do this why are you why do you keep saying yes to these guys and walking the aisle and raising the hand oh it makes them feel so good and uh, we we love that they've come all this way to be with us and so we we know that they 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 get a kick out of it I said, don't, don't do that anymore don't do that anymore In Muslim contexts, uh, you know, we, we would have people, uh, our Muslim friends would say uh, to, to visiting Americans, oh, I love Jesus. And the American would think, oh, they're, they're Christians. Well, all Muslims love Jesus. <laughs> if you have a missionary uh, tell you, oh, I went to a village and gave them a Bible and they said, we love Jesus, and he presents it like they've converted, don't believe that, all Muslims love Jesus as a prophet not as the divine son of God who laid down his life as a ransom for many. We need to be clear in our mind about conversion. One more book. Please get the book Biblical Conversion or Conversion. It's in the Nine Marks series. It's a colored book. It's yellow, written by Michael Lawrence. It's excellent to walk through this. The titles of the chapters are worth the book. Just buy the book and read the titles of the the chapter or borrow borrow a friend and, and take a picture of it with your phone. It's so good seven be bold and clear with the gospel Ephesians 6:19 pray also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel so so I did this I did this Bible study I, I did this study of the Bible of Paul's prayer requests you know a lot a lot of there's a lot of books about Paul's prayers, right, which are awesome. Don Carson has one. It's been renamed. Lance, do you know the name of that? It used to be Spiritual Reformation. and There's a new name for Don Carson's book on prayer. Do you know that? Prayers yes. Um, prayers with Paul. Yeah, something like that. Anyhow, it is excellent. Get it. But that's not what I'm talking about. I looked at Paul's prayer requests. What, what requests did Paul make for himself? There's not very many of them about 12 and some of them are there together so like and some of them don't count I mean well they count but I mean pray that I will come to you in Rome right so travel travel prayer requests and those are great but half of them are prayers for boldness pray that I will be strong in my mouth and opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mysteries of the gospel now listen If Paul needed prayer for boldness, how much more do we need boldness in our evangelistic efforts? So when Paul, of course, was in jail, so he had some reasons to to not be bold, Uh, so his prayer request for boldness, but Paul asked for prayer that he be fearless, a willingness to step out. So slay the fear of man, you know? That, most of the world I think it was Kennedy Pastor Kennedy down in Florida said most of the world fears the raised fist the Christian fears the raised fist most of us in America fear the raised eyebrow you know what I mean you know, oh he's a Christian so whether it's in the cafeteria at school in a class at work in your neighborhood you know wherever you are What we fear is what other people think of us. Jesus says you should be worried about what he thinks of you. Slay the fear of man. Take risks in evangelism. So, you know, which is just kind of by the way. Taking risks in evangelism is a key to spiritual health. So if someone says to me, they come to me and say, I I just feel a little dry in in my spiritual walk. My first thought is, have you shared your faith lately? I mean, really? have you really stepped out, taken a risk, tried to share your faith? I was at, uh, I was in Boston at South Shore Baptist Church and I was, I, was, I was speaking on evangelism and this soccer mom raises her hand and says, I'm so busy. You know, I'm, I'm going to soccer games, I'm picking up the kids, I got them at school. What can I do? I, I don't know what to do. I said, take more risks. Take more risks. Talk to the woman next to you at the next soccer match, <laughs> talk to talk to people as you go along the way. Ask them questions. Paul says in Acts twenty, he did not shrink. You know that feeling in evangelism when, when an evangelistic opportunity. You know, here's here's in my mind, this is what it's always like. I see that evangelistic opportunity coming for me. You know, and I want to step over here and it. You know, or then I, you know, it keeps coming at me, and then I want to. You know, I like get down here and let it. I mean. I just, I have the fear of man, you know? And, uh, and yet, you know, i found that if I, if I think about Paul not shrinking as one of the things, two things in his farewell address to the, the Ephesian elders that he talks about that was so important, I did not shrink from sharing with you the whole counsel of God. Uh, and, and it was tough in Ephesus when he shared the gospel there with non-Christians. You know, we've, Leanne and I've lived in many dangerous places. Uh, often there were bombs falling all around us in Kurdistan, in Iraq, um, in Dubai. It was very dangerous because they are the worst drivers in the world. <laughs> so every time we got on the highway, they all have these hot cars—you know, Ferraris, <laughs> and Lamborghinis, and stuff—and they drive 200 miles an hour down the highway. Really dangerous. That was the most dangerous th- th- thing we ever did. But when I asked people to pray for us, I didn't pray. People wanted to pray for our safety because they think the Middle East is dangerous. But I would say, yes, please, pray for our safety. But pray for us to be bold and clear with the gospel. It was was kind of the number one prayer request for us. I wanted to be ready to talk uh, with those who God brought our way in divine appointments. Number eight, gospel love. Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John 13 through 34. And then later, later in the same, in his same speech to his disciples in John 17, it's the longest recorded uh, talk of Jesus. It goes from John 13 to John 17. But towards the end of this soliloquy, he prays later in John. Uh, with his disciples, that the disciples be unified. And as Jesus prays to God the Father, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Loving communities, Christ fellowship, is the most important tool of evangelism you have. I, I mean, have you ever thought of how many biblical instructions God has built into the fabric of the church you've done right, and they serve as proclamations of the gospel. So when you pursue a healthy culture of evangelism, you don't have to remake the church for evangelism. I was a part of church that did that. It basically became a weekly evangelistic service, but we we didn't need to do that. We, We needed instead to allow God to do the things that were already built into the fabric of the church to proclaim the gospel. Jesus did not forget the gospel when he built the church. So baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It shows how his death is our death. His life is our life. The Lord's Supper proclaims the death of Christ until he returns and prompts us to confess our sins and forgiveness anew. Know his forgiveness anew. And when we pray, we pray the truths of God. We sing the great truths of God. We hear the word of God preached. We give financially to advance the gospel message. The preaching of the word forms the church to begin with. And once formed, the church is given the task of making disciples who are then sent to preach the gospel and form new churches. This cycle has been happening since Jesus ascended into heaven and will continue on his promise until he returns. So get this Here, here's the deal. Jesus says, love. The love we have one for another in our church is a statement that we're truly converted. It's a a statement. People will know you're, you're his disciples if you have love for another. So it's critical that you love one another at Christ Fellowship. And when we're unified in the church, when there's unity here, we show to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. One of the reasons I think it Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville that we see so many people coming to faith is partly partly one through six and partly due to campus outreach and their boldness on campus. But it is in a huge part due to the love and unity of our church, a powerful witness in our community. So love confirms our discipleship. Unity confirms Christ's deity. And what a powerful witness that is. Many, many scriptures that instruct and shape our evangelistic efforts, but these verses about love and unity are foundational because they show us the church is to be a culture of evangelism. So, we were uh, at a table in a food court in Dubai, at a university, and uh, there was probably this was this was probably six seven years into the ministry. And things were starting to take off among students. A lot of students have come to faith. Muslims have come to faith. And uh, we're having vibrant Bible studies with students on, on Muslim campuses. But people have come to the Lord. And we're sitting at a food court. And, and the students are laughing and talking. And these kids are from all over the world. I mean, we're talking about folks from the Arab world, from the Indian world, from from all, all over uh, the Levant, northern parts, Iran, um, Syria, we have people from Egypt, Pakistan. All these kids are sitting together. I'm, I'm not making this up. Someone came up to us and said, we heard there was this United Nations delegation here. Are you all that? And I, you know, I was like, no. But the students said, no, we're Christians. And if you want to know why we love each other, you should come to the Bible study. It's at Mac's office. <laughs> office that was the only place they knew to go. Oh, it's so powerful. When when the world sees unity and love, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to them. They ask questions. They want to know what's going on here. It will happen to you as well. And is happening, I trust. Ninth, the gospel as a spiritual di- discipline. We see Paul's heart for this in Romans 10:1. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is his fellow Jews is that they may be saved. So we see how Paul prayed uh, fervently for his fellow Jews to come to faith. Uh, Paul is is primarily praying that that people be intentional about sharing the gospel. Uh, As I've said, many different ways uh, people come to faith and use you. Um, But be intentional. In your prayer life, to pray for people who don't know the Lord, pray for them to come to faith, pray for them for their hearts to be moved by God. So, uh, so my daughter-in-law went went here to uh, school at, at, at Western, and she married obviously my son, and we've developed a relationship with her family, particularly her. Brother, who is John Ivanco, who is moving here, and I, I, intends to be in your fellowship in uh, in this December when their house is built, John and Shannon. So, John, I mean, this is this is typical Kentucky, right? A clan. So, uh, so John is married to my uh, daughter-in-law. I mean, uh, brother to my daughter-in-law, married to my son, and uh, he's with Campus Outreach. And we've developed a relationship with their parents. Now, John came to faith, Emily came to faith, brother and sister, and their mother came to faith about a year and a half ago, uh, through through witness of their children and other people that we've known over the years. And Joe, uh, their father, is has been a committed atheist. So, uh, two weeks ago, Joe and Kathy, New believer and Joe invited us to come visit their home in Katawa. They live on the lake at Lake Barkley, and so we said sure. I got down on my knees weeks before we went down, and um, this kind of this kind of summarizes a lot of things that I've been talking about one through ten. Uh, we went down and we wanted to be intentional and we wanted to take risks. So Joe has a boat. He lives at Lake Barkley, and he and I went to get the boat. And I'm in the car alone with Joe, and this is it. <laughs> I got to I got to do something. I can't I can't. But you know, evangelism is sort of always pushing the ball uphill. Uh, for me, anyhow, it's always been something I have to intentionally think about doing. And so I'm in the car. We uh, it goes silent. Lord, you know, help me. Uh, Joe, your wife has come to faith. Your daughter has come to faith. Your son has come to faith. Your brother has come to faith. I forgot to mention that. His brother has come to faith. All these are relatively new believers. They're all praying for you to come to faith. Well, what's the deal? What's going on? Last time we were together, I asked you how things were going spiritually, and you said better. <laughs> and now I want to know how, how's, how's that going? And he said, well, I've been an atheist. That was back when I was young and didn't know anything. And then I became an agnostic. I believed in God. And now I see what God is doing through my family. And, you know, I think the next step is to become a Christian. Joe, you should do that. (laughs) You pray for Joe. He hasn't yet, but... I kind of think he doesn't have a chance. (laughs) The Lord is working in his heart. My heart's desire and prayer to God is for Joe to be saved. Just like Paul says in Romans 10, and if you know anyone like that, pray for them regularly. Pray that God will use you in their lives. I want to come into prayer. So here's a prayer for you that I've I've prayed over the years. uh, So I was... I was a brand new baby Christian uh, out of a bad background. And, uh, but I, I'd come to faith at a skiing and mountain climbing school in Sermont, Switzerland. I wanted to ski professionally, snow ski. I wanted to go to the Olympics. I wasn't good enough to go to the Olympics, but that was the dream. Anyhow, uh, I'd come to faith, I went back to Owensboro, and this kid, Mike Spencer, Kind of took me under his wing. It was my age. He had a car, sort of. I mean, it was a rusted out bucket of bolts, but he had a car. He would pick me up. I mean, and and we would go to the high school parking lot, and I'd been a part of the cool crowd, sort of. And uh, I and we bowed our heads to pray in the parking lot. It was the it was the most embarrassing thing I I think I've ever done in my life. I, And the car was so bad, I probably could have fallen through the car. You know, when we vowed to pray, I could see through the floorboards. I could see the parking lot, literally. It was a carbon monoxide death trap. Anyhow, (laughs) Michael would pray, Mike Spencer would pray this prayer Oh God, if there is anyone here today that needs to hear of your love, let Mac and I share the gospel with them. (laughs) Of course, I thought that was the dumbest thing in the world, and I was never going to do that. (laughs) I was a brand new believer. But over time, as Mike picked me up and brought me to school, and we prayed that prayer, I saw the Lord work in my own heart uh, for others. Let me let me commend that prayer to you. One, one other prayer in terms of discipline. Um, pray that the Lord would use you to lead someone to Christ once a year. Just pray that God would allow you to do that. I've prayed that, and God has been very faithful to me in that over the years. I think almost every year, I could look back and think of someone that I had a hand in, coming to faith. So not the masses, you know, not mass evangelism, but just faithful, good, ongoing evangelism. The last thing here, I'm out of time, but the last thing here is evangelistic leadership. And again, I've I've talked about that in Acts 20, 20 through 21, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ champion evangelism in your church. So if you're in a position of leadership, you're a Sunday school leader, you lead a home group if you have them, uh, as Lance preaches, make room in prayer meetings and sermons through personal witness yourself to champion those who are sharing their faith. Even if there fails, champion the effort and give opportunity for those who've shared their faith to share with the congregation how that's going. I love how Greg, Pastor Greg at Third Avenue, usually we'll have opportunity at our prayer meetings on Sunday night to have uh, people share any evangelistic opportunity that's going on here. Maybe you do that as well. But I commend that to you as well, to know what's going on in the congregation as you share your faith. Thank you so much. Let me let me pray for us. I don't think there's time for for QA. I'm sorry about that. Okay, okay. Well Okay, a couple, couple questions. Oh, do you have a question? Maybe you don't have one. I've covered everything. Yeah. Maybe Leanne can speak to a little more, about I was just wondering of like, um, like in evangelism to like specifically women, who uh, are Muslim. like yeah. What have you all seen to be the most uh, biblical and like beneficial? I can give you a general answer. The, our, our pattern is Leanne needs a minute to think and I, I talk immediately. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I'm more accurate than her. She, usually she's more accurate, but it always gives her a chance to kind of gather herself. So that's, our, that's, that's, our, that's how we work. I can, I can tell you, if you know the Gospel, you know enough to share your faith with a Muslim, man or woman. But it's better to think in terms of women. Um, and that's the primary thing. So we, we just heard a talk yesterday from Ibrahim, uh, Ayman Ibrahim, uh, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's written a new book on sharing your faith with your Muslim neighbor. Uh, and he, he basically said the same thing. There's some things that are helpful to know about Islam, some landmines that are helpful. There's not very many of them. And it's mostly just important that you do these 10 things. Most Muslim women that we saw come to faith in our church in Iraq, came and saw the community. They saw the love, which is completely absent in Islam. So I would invite them to church, but i So creative thinking, like weddings. We just had a picnic at, uh, last Friday at our church, and Emily, our daughter-in-law, invited Zara and her husband to come uh, from from Turkey. Or they're from Turkey. They brought their little girl. They loved it, and it was an opportunity to, to invite them again to church. They they've not done that yet, but we're we're going to keep at it. And um, yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, other question. Your church. Yeah. How did that, like, work? <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> so the question is, how, how did it work in Dubai to have a multi-ethnic church? We probably had 60 multi uh, sixty nationalities in our church. There were 1,200 people in our church. So it was, it was a massive church. Um, and we met in the largest auditorium in Dubai uh, at the Crown Plaza. Is that right? No, the Marriott. The Marriott. And uh, we started at the Crown Plaza, but at the Marriott. And then... Uh, You know, it was just, it worked beautifully. (laughs) So, it was, everyone who came obviously were English speakers. Uh, So, but the UAE is sort of an English speaking place. It was a British protectorate and most Indians who are educated and have jobs there in in the UAE uh, spoke English. So, it was an English speaking church, but for us, you don't have to do a lot of changes if you do biblical church. So we would say often, this was more when I was the pastor in Iraq, we would say, our goal is not to be an American church. Our goal is not to be an Arab church. Our goal is not to be a Kurdish church. Our goal is not to be an Iranian church. We had all those communities in our church in Iraq. Our goal is to be a biblical church. So we want our church to look like 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, and 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 14. We want mere church, where we sing the word, pray the word, preach the word, and uh, see the word in the sacraments. And we want to explain that, and whatever form that takes from sitting on the floor to sitting in pews, we don't care. So the form for us was very secondary. Now, in a globalized world, you'd be surprised how little contextualization actually is needed uh, in some places, especially in urban areas, urban global settings. But yeah, but we've we've worshipped with the Maasai in in East Africa on dirt in the dirt under a tree, <laughs> and it was beautiful. And we've worshipped in you know very Anglican Gothic structures in in uh, Ismir and in 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 Istanbul, where I've pre- i preached in Istanbul in the ancient church that was set up by the Dutch back in the 1600s. You know. <laughs> So I, you know, and who cares about the form? The important thing is that it's biblical. So it, this, the goal was to be biblical. Is that, am I getting at your question? Yeah, I didn't phrase it very well. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, go ahead. You want to no, come I've back at me? I well. Um, okay. Oh no, that's okay. That's all right. Lance, I, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, brother.